time, weather, and... You're listening to The Shakeup, where we explore the business decisions that dare to be different and the leaders who are shaking up their industries. My name is Alexis Gay. I'm Brianne Kimmel, and on each episode, we'll bring research and data-backed insights to dig into the minds of business leaders and learn how they make the decisions to challenge the status quo. You can support the show by following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or honestly, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there, hanging out, talking business, ready and waiting to shake things up with you. Okay. Today on The Shakeup, we have a great show for you. We're going to be talking with Enrique de Brugas, the founder and co-CEO of Brex, how he grew the company to hundreds of millions in revenue, and how he made some of the important decisions that got him to that point. Not only that, we'll be talking about how Enrique, from a wee preteen age, began building his entrepreneurial mindset. So let's get started. May I be the first to say, I am so excited to talk with today's guest. He's the founder and co-CEO of Brex, Enrique Dubragas. Welcome to The Shakeup. Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah, we are thrilled to have you. Yeah, this is going to be a ton of fun. So Enrique, we've been talking about how Brex has grown to over $59 million in revenue. And we've, we're going to spend some time on the company's focus on SMBs and not just startups. And we want to do a deep dive on the, a lot of the partnerships and how many of the rewards-based um, models have come about. A lot of exciting stuff to talk about on the numbers front. We're also excited to get inside your mind to hear about how you're growing the company and how you make decisions. And I thought it would actually be a fun place to start to let you know that I'm a Brex user myself. I'm a Brex cardholder. Amazing. Love that. Mm-hmm. I really like Alexis's point earlier, you know, especially as someone that's recently created an LLC that's building a new career as essentially a self-taught comedian. I feel like Brex continuously delivering new products and new solutions is really interesting because historically for someone getting a business off the ground, they'd have to discover multiple different tools where Brex is essentially rolling up all these tools into a single place. Um, Why do you think traditional banks have been so hesitant to do so? Or is this something that's been completely um, overlooked on their part? The problem of the banks is is purely technology. So most of them run on these systems that were built like 20, 30 years ago. So imagine you want to build anything. You have to go and integrate or change something in the core that, you know, hasn't been touched for 20 years, right? Mm. So what we kind of did at Brex, which is we we knew this and we basically said, hey, we're going to rebuild the entire core software stack from scratch. We're not going to use any of these like legacy software players that the banks used, Mm -hmm. which a lot of fintechs in the past did. We're just going to rebuild everything from scratch. So I don't think that the banks never had the idea of like, well, let's build this. And a lot of them tried for many years. It's just really hard for them to build on top of their existing systems. That's really interesting. It sounds like what you're saying is that other fintech companies had maybe attempted to solve this problem. I'm curious, why was Brex ultimately more successful? I think that it had a little bit to do with timing and a little bit to do with, um, you know, just our own experience, right? Like, I think we had built a fintech company before starting Brex that was a payment processing company. And we saw a lot of the issues of the industry of... um, you know, basically having these legacy technologies and trying to build on top of them. So it was something that we felt very strongly about more than I think most founders before. And I think the other thing is just about 
capital, right? Like I think, Hmm. you know, five, 10 years ago, it was really hard um, to raise a lot of capital for FinTech. Like FinTech wasn't a thing, right? And it was really hard to attract a lot of the best engineering talent for FinTech, like, because it wasn't a thing. So if you're hiring engineers and the best engineers, they want to go to like social media companies or O2O companies, right? Like that was cool. Um, and, and FinTech just became like a, you know, a, a big thing over the last, you know, four or five years around the world, right? I'm new bank. Like there's, you know, there's a ton of them now, but, uh, that just got to scale recently that made it so it's possible to raise a lot of money for FinTech. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So it seems like, and I think the data would back this up, you know, small business credit card volume is on the rise. One of the stats that we have said that it's set to balloon from $493 billion in 2017 to $686 billion in 2022. What other shifts in customer behaviors have helped fuel Brex's growth? A big one is the percentage of vendors that take credit card has been increasing. So Mm, mm -hmm. if you think about a business of the past, right? Like, let's say you got a, uh, I don't know, like a restaurant, right? Like you're paying, your biggest costs are your rent, which you can't pay on card, your food, which is usually like, um, you know, uh, wholesale. So you pay over check, right? Like you have employees, which are payroll. So it didn't really have a lot of card expenses. Um, which is, you know, kind of like a core part of our monetization and business model. Hmm. Then if you go to an e-commerce company, very different. They pay a ton of ads all on credit cards. They pay, you know, um, servers on credit cards. They have a lot of SaaS mm-hmm. vendors like Shopify and, you know, or Toast or, you know, Slack, et cetera, all going through credit cards. And that being a bigger part of a, a company's like total expenses, uh, that has been like really good for Brex. Totally. Those types of shifts all make a ton of sense. And then, of course, the booming number of former tech workers leaving to become comedians. I mean, that must be a huge portion of your revenue. Huge. Yeah, that's our, Massive. you know, we're even, we, we're going to have a GM for comedians soon. I, let me know. Uh, hook us up on email. I can deliver product feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So Enrique, you know, as you're thinking about those decisions and where to go next with your customers and thinking about how all of those customer behavior trends are shifting. How do you how do you make those big decisions about where Brex should invest next? What's your personal decision-making process like? It's something that we've been iterating, right? Because in our view, building a company is just like a series of, you know, small and big decisions gone right. And mm. I think there's like two types of decisions. One is the ones that you're not making yourself, right? That because they're smaller and they're more day to day, or even mm-hmm. they're they're bigger, but they're just you know the company grew enough. And the important thing there is creating the right systems for your team to basically make those decisions correctly, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a decision between prioritizing product A or product B, how do you make so that they know to prioritize prioritize product B instead of product A because of the system you put in place, right? So what are the incentives that they have? What are the North Star metric? Um, what is it that we're optimizing for? Who's the customer they're supposed to be talking to to serving the needs? Hmm. You know, making sure all those things are super clear and you spend a ton of time thinking about those things makes the entire company make better decisions, right? And then sometimes there's like these big strategic decisions that you have to make. 
And for me, the big trade-off there is when you're making like really big decisions, you, you need to make sure you have a mix between strategy and like doing the right things for your long-term vision mm. and you know what you want your business to be like after a long time, but also things that customers want from you, right? Because it's not only doing, I think a lot of companies when they grow, they think that they earn the right to do everything Mm. Um, because it makes sense for their strategy, but then they don't think enough of like, why will the customer actually want this, you know? (laughs) Totally. Enrique, I want to go back to a little Enrique lore that we read. I want to hear a little bit about you at age 12. I read about uh, you at age 12, and I, I heard that it all started with a video game. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's kind of how I started coding. Um, I started coding when I was around 12 because there was this game I wanted to play. It was a paid game. And uh, gambling and playing in Portuguese is the same word. Oh, really? Yeah. And when I asked my parents uh, about, hey, can you pay for this thing for me? They said, no, why are we going to give you money to gamble? You know, and it's hard to explain. Like, it was different. Um, so I, I learned that if I learned how to code, I could actually play the game for free and build like a pirate version of the game that, oh my God. you know, I could, me and my friends could play. And then I launched this pirate version of the game and it got, it became super popular. Um, like a lot of people started playing because it was free and you know, a lot of people don't have the money. Yeah. So that's kind of how I started out. But like six months later, unfortunately, I got some legal notifications saying I was breaking some sort of patents. Oh my God. I didn't really know what patents were, but my mom got super upset. So after that, you created some education startups, but at the (laughs) ripe old age of 16, you created Pagar.me. And what I read was that in just three years, Pagar.me grew to 1.5 billion in volume of transaction processed. Can you tell me a little bit about how you went from coding this game at 12 to building a company that processed billions of dollars in volume by 16? Yeah, totally. So basically, uh, after, you know, we, we, I got these legal notifications, I started having like, a, you know, I was just spent all my time doing this. Like it was a hundred percent of my time and energy was building this thing. So I was having this kind of like 14 year old crisis a little bit, of, you know, <laughs> what do I do with my life? But th- then what happened was I started doing some normal stuff, right? To fill my time. So I, sure. I found a girlfriend, I started watching TV shows <laughs> and I started watching a TV show called Chuck. Oh yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like a really good computer hacker and programmer Hmm. that saved the world through Claude. And he was very clumsy, so I kind of identified a little bit. And I was like, oh, I want to be exactly like Chuck. Chuck is so awesome. And Chuck Mm -hmm. had gone to Stanford. And I was I just I got obsessed with getting into Stanford because Chuck had gone to Stanford. That's amazing. That was why. Really? That was why. (laughs) Yeah. I just completely I just wanted to be Chuck. Um and uh so when when that happened. I basically started getting obsessed with how to get in Stanford, but it was kind of a complicated process for Brazilians, you know, like the whole hmm. US application process is not not super easy. Yeah. And then I, I found this Brazilian that was graduating from Stanford um, and I added him on Facebook and, you know, started chatting with him. He gave me some attention and it turns out he was starting a startup in Brazil that was like an event bred in Brazil, so ticketing in Brazil. Hmm. And you know, I was a coder, so we did this deal in which I would code for him for free in exchange. He would teach me the Stanford application process and write me a recommendation letter. Wow. Um, wow, that's great. So 
that's kind of how I got into startups. I went to work for this guy for a year and he basically taught me so much about doing startups and I was super involved in building a product and everything. Mm. And uh, I don't know, it just sounded like a really cool life, this entrepreneur life. So after a year working, I decided I wanted to try to do a company myself. Why not? Yeah. You know, I'm like, so I, I, I learned how to get into to, to college in the US, even though I haven't gotten in yet, I at least learned the process. So I decided to build a company that helped other Brazilians with the whole process. So I built this education company that helped Brazilians uh, with the US application process, which got a bunch of users early on, but never monetized in any way. Sure. So it, it failed miserably. Mm. Um, but it's kind of got into startups. I met, you know, a bunch of people. It was interesting. I wasn't oppressed a good amount, so it kind of opened some doors. Yeah. Um, and then I was having these, you know, huge fights with my mom because she wasn't really into this entrepreneurship thing. And mm. I wanted to, you know, do more of that and less of school. What did she want you to do instead? Uh, just, you know, normal school and go to college and stuff. And at this time, I was saying I'm not going to go to college and all those oh, things. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so I had to get emancipated, moved out of my house, started supporting myself. This whole drama. Oh my God. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I was kind of running out of money and I found this hackathon in Miami that was worth $50,000. And I was like, wow, if I can win this thing, it's more time without going back to my mom. Right. So I went there with two friends and we built this app that was like a dating app that was like Tinder. But instead of geolocation to Facebook friends, you could like and match your Facebook friends. And we tried and we won it. Um, and we tried to launch the, the, the app as a business and it didn't really work again. Mm. But that's how I got into payments because I started like trying to charge for this thing. Sure. Um, and it was a really, really terrible experience. So that's kind of how I had my first experience, you know, with, with payment methods. Oh, and it's around the time my, my, my co-founder Pedro. And Pedro, he was working at a payments company. So what happened is when Pedro was 14, he got hired by Brazil's largest payments company um, because he was the, one of the only people in, the, in, in Brazil who understood about iOS security and hmm. they were launching an app needed to be secure. He was hacking iPhones, so it kind of made sense. Yeah. So he got hired at that company. And, um, and that's kind of how we, he knew about payments. And then we met in the end of 2012 over Twitter actually. Really? Yeah, fighting text editors, Vim versus Emacs. I was Vim, he was Emacs. Um, it got too complicated to fight over 104 characters. We went to Skype. On Skype, we became best friends and decided to start our company, Pagarma, together. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Twitter fights very rarely end in friendship. You know, speaking of your uh, relationship with Pedro and your co-founder, in an interview with The Takeoff, you said, Pedro and I always liked the idea of working on something for 30 plus years. Some people are serial entrepreneurs and they want to build and sell companies and build multiple things. That was never really our thing. We just wanted to work on something for a long, long period of time. It sounds like prior to Brex, you were already on the way to becoming a serial entrepreneur. What changed in your focus to want to stay on one concept for a long, long period of time? Well, the first, the first thing I couldn't do anymore because I got some legal notifications. In my right, 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 right. <laughs> the second thing failed. Sure. Miserably. Happens. The third thing also didn't work. And then mm -hmm. the fourth thing, Pagara, actually worked. Yeah. Um, and, you know, selling that company was a big decision. But I think one thing that we always like, look, if we're going to work on something for 30 years, we want it to be something really big. And mm. at the time when we sold Pagarma, there wasn't like any Brazilian unicorns. Like there were, and it didn't, it wasn't clear that they were going to happen. 
anytime soon. Interesting. You know, we always thought like, look, if we're going to spend something working on something for 30 years, it might as well be something really big. And mm-hmm. we thought that we could build something much bigger in the United States, you know, building something global, et cetera. And, you know, that's kind of what got us to decide to sell the company in the end. Hmm. Um, and also, look, we were 20 and broke, right? And, you know, we yeah. sold the company to change our lives and much easier to think in 30 year horizons when you don't have to worry about your credit card next month, you know? <laughs> It's interesting, too, because while you in, intend to build for a long, long period of time, the Brex team is consistently shipping new features and new products, essentially. And so it does look like, you know, the company is constantly evolving. Um, one question that I have for you is more on how you think about various different markets and, and how you um, approach the SMB segment. Cause I think that's one that's very dynamic and always changing. And there's a bit more of a cyclical nature to the business model. And so how do you think about, you know, it, will there be a moment where Brex essentially needs to move up market or you'll go more enterprise, or do you feel like the market size for startups and SMBs is large enough and stay focused? We're definitely going from tiny to really big. I think, you know, our model similar to, uh, Stripe and a few others is like getting companies when they're young and sticking with them till they're public and plus, right? So, and and I think there's two big initiatives in Brex right now. One is going even lower market um, and one is going more up market, which may, there's a lot mm-hmm. of execution challenges of that, but we definitely want to serve companies to the mid-market and enterprise and we definitely want to serve, you know, companies that are just getting started. So we, we, we definitely see with both. Um, we do though... You know, we think that Innovator's Dilemma is kind of like our Bible a little bit on how to build products that in order to build a really successful product for the, you know, for, for kind of like more high margin customers like the mid-market, you need to nail and be super efficient on the low side, mm-hmm. um, at least in our industry, because you just create a cost structure and efficiency structure that makes your cost of serving these uh, how larger customers much lower and that allows you to you know price more aggressively you know build more and mm. um, than, than before so that's how we think about it yeah that makes a ton of sense I mean I know you talked about building the you know operating system and especially as companies start to get larger and you know for small businesses maybe they introduce multiple locations or you know evolve to different geographies it's it's awesome to see that you're constantly you know releasing new products and new features for this segment in particular um what do you think have been some of the hardest decisions that you've had to make in increasing the efficiency for the self-serve business and in you know maybe turning away even big customers to stay focused on smbs and startups at the beginning everyone gives us like advice that it's important to stay focused right mm-hmm. um but then you know as the company grows you're doing more stuff so that becomes a little bit more okay what does focus mean when you have mm-hmm. you know a lot of people that can do more than one thing and then making sure that you're prioritizing correctly I think like the hardest in that has been built cash, right? Like our bank account replacement product, because mm-hmm. it is something that will take a long time to, you know, for us to win like Walmart in our cash account will take like a while mm-hmm. um, versus card, you know, it's like much, much faster. But we also believe that the bank account, you know, in a cash management part is like the center of gravity for a company that if you own that, you know, the company is more likely to buy everything from you. Versus, you know, um, other products are more a little bit more tangential. 
So I think building that at the time that we did and investing as much as we have in that product has probably mm. been the most non-obvious decision we made. And you're referring to, you said Brex Cash, right? The central account yeah. for businesses? Yeah. So something that I saw is that in launching that product, you had to keep pushing the launch. Can you tell me a little bit about what was going through your mind then and how you handled that decision to push the launch out? Look, it was just a lot more complex than we thought it was going to be. You know, mm. that's the, the reality. Like when we started to build it, it was, we thought it was going to be six months with 10, 15 engineers. Yep. And then it just started becoming more complex and more complex and mm. more complex and more complex. And, you know, it probably took three times as long, three times as many engineers. Mm. Uh, wow. You know, it happens, right? So, but I'm super happy we did it though. Oh, for sure. And on the engineering front, was it um, hiring constraints? Was it, you know, a need for specialization? Like what were some of the challenges that the team is facing internally? I think it's just the bar for being a company's main operational account was much higher than we expected. So we saw these consumer companies launching like bank account products, right? And, you know, they seem to be working and getting traction, et cetera. But turns out that the bar for businesses to you know, have as their main account is much larger. Like they have a bookkeeper, they have employees, they have approvals, they have a lot more constraints and requirements than like a consumer account has. So we had to build a lot more before you know, we had good product market fit and good NPS. Like it was just a bunch of missing features early on. Totally. So Enrique, you know, that's a really difficult decision to push a launch, to have to publicly say that you're pushing a launch, tell the team internally. And I think that it's something a lot of leaders have to go through. I'm wondering if you could take us into the moment that you realized this was a decision that you were going to have to make and announce to the team and externally. Can you tell me a little bit about what that felt like? You know, it was two, two forces right at the same time. Um, force number one was we have all these investors, you know, that expected the product to launch, expected the revenue to start to come and the customer acquisition and the models. And then the force on the other side was our brand, which is like, whenever we release the product, what will our customers think about it? Yeah. And, you know, I think for us, the second one was stronger than the first one that we wanted our second product to be so good that customers would want to buy our third product. You right. know, versus if you screw up your second one, you kind of lose their trust a little bit, you know, and trying to the third one later on. So we just wanted to make sure that our second act was as good or better than our first act. And if that took more time to do it, so be it. And I'm wondering, you know, was there ever a moment where you started to question things? Did you wonder at any point if you had made a wrong turn to go down the central accounts path? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, really? Yeah. What were you uh, thinking? It's hard, right? Because like when we launched Brex, right, we went from, I'm going to make up numbers, okay? Yeah. I don't know, 100K in revenue to 200K in revenue in a month. We thought, amazing, right? Like mm -hmm. we're growing 100%. This is great. And, uh, and then, you know, after a year, let's say we were, you know, I don't know, at a million and then we were going to 1.3 million, 1.5, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, again, totally made up numbers. And then let's say we're at 10 million in revenue. Yep. And then cash launched and cash went from 10K in revenue to 20K in revenue in one month. It's great if you were tiny, but now that I have a base of 10 million, mm -hmm. it doesn't really move the needle, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, 
So I think you set your own expectations really high for these things and you think that they're gonna go much faster than they do, but every new product is almost like a new startup, right? It takes some time to mature and grow and get to the scale. Um, so you need to like give it time to like mature, but I think before I was realizing that, uh, we were just, oh, this is like not growing as fast as we thought it was gonna grow, you know, is, is it bad, you know? And it, it took a little while to then like start to get into a scale that was meaningful for us. Um, for us to get that confidence. So now every time we launch a, a new product, we're like, okay, we know it's not gonna be like super meaningful in the beginning, but if we keep investing, we keep making it better and we keep doing it, you know, eventually it's gonna, it's gonna be really good. So I think we're a little bit more patient there. That's great. So it does sound like something learned came out of that that you can then apply moving forward. So one thing I'd love to spend a little bit of time on is the fact that Brax has partnerships with Amazon and Slack and Zoom and a great rewards program that's really served as a competitive advantage and, you know, something that's created more of a holistic offering for so many types of startups and small businesses and, and customers that you serve. Um, how did you think about, you know, measuring the impact of each new partner and how did you really structure some of those early partnerships? You know, it's only spent a lot of time early on. Like we wanted to redesign rewards, right? So traditionally rewards for cards were built for individuals. It's like very focused on the consumer. And we wanted like, what are, what are rewards that businesses would care about, right? And startups would actually care about. Hmm. And so that's kind of where we went. It's like, hey, what are the best software, you know, startups that, what other companies do startups use? And let's get discounts and better deals so we can actually create a rewards package that competes at a different angle than Amex because we're never gonna beat them at their own game. Mm -hmm. And it's actually more relevant to our tar target customer segment. So that's kind of how it, it came to be early on. Awesome. Okay, so Enrique, we have one more question for you. Something that you said earlier, you said you know when you were getting into Stanford or when you wanted to go to Stanford, you said that all you wanted was to be Chuck. And I'm wondering, after all of the incredible success of Brex and all the success that you still have ahead of you, who do you want to be now? Honestly, I kind of want to be Enrique, you know? It's like it's been pretty cool <laughs> to be Enrique recently. Uh, I think that, you know, one of the things that you learn as an entrepreneur is to, you have all these role models, right? And you think that a successful entrepreneur looks like this or looks like that. Yeah. And the more time you spend, you, you realize that being authentic is kind of what allows you to go for many years. It's, it's really hard to try to be someone for 20 years, 30 years, you know? Um, and I think one of the lessons, and I think Silicon Valley has a kind of weird effect in this, that it wants this like mold of founder. Right. That, you know, we are lucky to kind of like be on that mold, you know? And that's, I think, why we had an easy time raising money early on. But I think as we grow, we're like, hey, we just want to be ourselves. We want to be authentic. We don't want to go into some mold that Silicon Valley creative, what great founders look like. We just, you know, want to do our thing for, for a long period of time. Amazing. It's such an amazing story. I'm excited to watch you guys do it. So Enrique, for companies looking to get Brex, where can they find out more? Just go to Brex.com and you'll, you'll see everything there. We love it. Okay, Enrique, thank you so much for joining us on The Shake Up. This was such a delight. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it as well. Awesome. Hey, Rianne, are you ready to do that thing we practiced? Oh my gosh, is it time? I'm ready. Okay, three, two, one. Don't, Don't forget, forget to subscribe, subscribe and, and leave, leave us, us a review. review.
pretty good. <laughs> Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Lauren Schild. Our engineer is William Lowe, with research from Corey Broccolini. And special thanks to Kyle Denhoff and Lisa Toner. We have some amazing guests coming up this season that you won't want to miss. See you next time.